You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. The holy city of Rishikesh, India, buzzes with those seeking spiritual sustenance. Elaborate ashrams full of foreign revelers echo with the holy prayers and songs of satsang, led by a guru or sadhu, draped in saffron robes and guiding their devotees with a contemplative voice of authority. Incense infuses the air during puja, a religious ceremony performed on the ghats of the river Ganges. A line of men, adorned in intricately designed robes, gaze out at the holy water, rhythmically chanting while they present their offerings in a circular motion to the Hindu deities they worship. And the sprawl of yoga studios that have burgeoned in succession after Rishikesh was recognized as the birthplace of yoga, thanks in part to the father of transcendental meditation, the Maharishi, whose foresight and wisdom lured the Beatles to Rishikesh, where holiness hangs heavy in the air, and the simplicity the Beatles were forced to adopt at the Maharishi's ashram led to a creative clarity that birthed the White Album. It's February 3rd, 2012. 28-year-old Jonathan Spallin walks over the narrow, heavily trafficked bridge. He's got pale skin from his Irish lineage, dark hair that hangs around his shoulders, and a beard, evidence of the over two months he's been traveling through India. But unlike the other Western seekers he passes who are carrying yoga mats or in a daze from deep meditation, Jonathan doesn't romanticize the spiritual offerings of Rishikesh. On his last trip to India, he interviewed Pralad Jani, a wiry monk with wide blue eyes and a vacant gaze. If Pralad Jani looks a little out of it, it's because he and his followers claim that he lived without food or water for 80 years. He was called a Brethrian monk because he survived on air. Jonathan met with Jani to write an article about him while the monk was still alive. And though some people assumed that he was a follower, 
Jonathan was not influenced by Johnny. As a journalist, it was just another job. Jonathan has worked in journalism in Cairo, Abu Dhabi, and Hong Kong. In a 2010 article he wrote for The National about Neranag, a Kashmiri village, his curious and empathic prose easily dropped readers into the day-to-day of the Kashmiris, not only giving us a taste of their lives, but an awareness of the peaceful simplicity of their culture, which Jonathan states in his article, I knew I was idealizing, romanticizing life in Neranag, but the real benefits of living there were too great and too many to ignore. As Westerners, consumed with our phones, tablets, the overall noise of our culture and the expectations, it's easy to idealize an escape, which is something many parts of India can offer. On this trip, Jonathan's third to India, he's at a crossroads in his life and is contemplating whether to continue journalism or go into documentary film. This question hangs in the air as he prepares for a solo trek he's going to make into the dense, wooded terrain of the Himalayas, outside Rishikesh. His visa is about to run out, so instead of going to Delhi, as originally planned, this will be his last hurrah in India. He calls his mom, Linda Spallen, back in Dublin to tell her about his trek. They're close and have been keeping up on his travels through India via text and sporadic calls here and there. When Linda hears of his plan to trek through the Himalaya solo, she asks that he consider going with a guide. Jonathan shrugs off her maternal instinct with a simple answer. I want to do it on my own. Kind of a spiritual thing. If you Google India Syndrome, Jonathan's Wikipedia page is listed under the definition. And part of that is because of this throwaway comment he made to his mom before a solo trek he would never return from. As we've discussed, India syndrome is defined as a psychosis that hits Westerners in India seeking some sort of spiritual enlightenment. And through expert interviews, we've deciphered that India syndrome is a theory, not a medical diagnosis. But it's also a speculation that's plagued Jonathan's disappearance since he was reported missing on February 27th, 2012. I wanted to interview Jonathan's mom, Linda, on her thoughts about her son's widely publicized comment about his solo trek being a spiritual thing. Was it blown out of context? Or was her son actually seeking something in the solitude of the Himalayas? Linda and I connected and spoke several times the past few months, and I've heard her thoughts on many things. But I never got an official interview, and therefore will not be sharing our communication in this episode. And this is why. Hey. Hello. You sleep deprived as hell? Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I know where this anxiety's come coming from, but this is Gabby, a stray supervising producer. I'm in my voiceover booth. She's in her room. We live literally two blocks away from each other, and this is what we do during the pandemic. We meet on Zoom in separate homes in the same neighborhood and interview people. But today, we're having a different conversation. Hi. And here's Ankita, our third in the Astray producing trio. I, I, I don't know if I told you this, but I, I did. I left you a voice memo, but um, Linda dropped out again. Jonathan Spallen's story jump-started this podcast, a podcast focused on India, a country halfway around the world, which made this past year during COVID pretty tricky, 
especially while navigating our original plan, to investigate Jonathan's disappearance on that solo track through the Himalayas. Yeah, I heard that. And you were thinking of your integrity, doubting it. After the investigation blew up because of pandemic-related reasons, Linda backed out, which was tough because she and I had formed a relationship and I'd come to value her opinion, along with genuinely wanting to help her answer questions surrounding her son's disappearance. Ultimately, I knew how important Linda's voice would be in telling Jonathan's story, so I re-engaged her in the process and had at least two episodes devoted to Jonathan because his story is one that really impacted me. But she backed out again, literally two days ago, which has put us in a scramble. We've been working so hard to make her feel comfortable with this process, even sharing the outline with her. And I I just feel like she's disappointed in the process, but also, and I think Gabby, you might have said this, I think she's also grieving. This is the month where Jonathan went missing. And, but I just feel like we've built this relationship and now it's just blown up and like, I've disappointed her. And, and then it makes me feel like I'm a bad person. Like, am I exploiting her son? You know? Like, I don't know. I just feel really, I feel really torn about it. Obviously, I was emotional after she backed out. I questioned myself, my motives for doing this podcast, the intimate human stories I'm sharing of these men who have disappeared. When you investigate stories like this, you get pulled in and in some cases form relationships with the families. And that's tough because our job is to expose information And sometimes there's conflict in that clarity because people don't want that information to lead to further speculations when they don't even have clear answers themselves. Throughout this process, I felt like I've been skating this line between entertainment, which you all tune in for, and ethics, which should be at the core of all journalism, especially in true crime investigations. But when Linda dropped out, I questioned all of it. And even writing his episodes really hard. I mean, you're trying to answer bigger questions, and unfortunately, you have to do that by using examples, and Jonathan is an example of it. So you're not doing anything that's unethical because you are putting in the work to answer questions and like make contribution to our conversations around spirituality. So That's Gabby talking me off a ledge, but it's also a peek behind the curtain. Things blow up in true crime. You're dealing with loss, be it someone's disappearance or death. And as podcast facilitators, we have to navigate the heavy emotions and grief that surround that, which can either fuel an investigation or put an end to it. This stopped being only about Jonathan a long time ago. But now it's not even like he's the main person around who the entire story revolves. There are many more people now. There are many more families. And Keita's right. Originally, this was supposed to be a single true crime investigation about Jonathan Spallin's disappearance. But after it ended the first time, the investigation morphed into something bigger as we found more stories and felt compelled to examine deeper questions. I wanted to get to the why rather than just unravel the how, though the how in Jonathan's case is still extremely ambiguous, which for this episode, Linda wants to keep that way. And honestly, we don't know what happened to Jonathan, you know, and she's never taken spirituality or the sort of spiritual question off the table. She's always been like, well, I want to keep everything open. So I guess I'm just trying to be really aware of that. Like as we sort of come into the the era of true crime, how can we have bridged the gap between entertainment and ethics? 
I'm going through my own existential crisis about how to roll out this episode. I respect Linda wanting to steer clear of assumptions and sensationalism. And honestly, because there's no body, it's not fair to adhere to one speculation. And though Ryan Chambers' parents, especially his brother Aaron, have leaned into the larium theory, they've never closed the door on any of the other possibilities surrounding Ryan's disappearance. In Jonathan's episode, instead of deep diving into a story with Linda, which we had planned to do, I'm going to tell his story with someone Linda respected. Yeah, we had a really nice conversation. And I know, I remember her saying that she felt like the story had been misrepresented. You know, other people trying to sensationalize things that they didn't have answers to, right? And so I was honored that she was willing to talk to me. This is journalist Jessica Ravitz speaking about a conversation she had with Linda that informed the 2014 CNN article she wrote about Jonathan's disappearance. She didn't pump up the drama or settle on any one speculation. So out of respect for Linda, I think it's only fair to have Ravitz, a journalist who I've also come to appreciate, help tell Jonathan's story. A colleague heard I was going to India, to Rishikesh in particular, and she came up and told me about a former colleague of hers and her previous job who had gone missing in Rishikesh, and that was Jonathan Spallin. In 2014, Ravitz traveled to Rishikesh for a poignant article she wrote about her own spiritual awakening. Like Jonathan, she witnessed this spiritual mecca firsthand. But Rishikesh is not all love and light. There's something dark lurking there, too. Being in Rishikesh, I mean, just, it's a spiritual Disneyland, and everyone there is trying to teach and be a guru and, and gather a following and maybe rip people off financially. Like, you know, there's so much that you could fall victim to. This is the more ominous side of Rishikesh, one we see all too often in the States, the consumerism of spirituality, which can lead to false prophets, scams, and a handful of other frauds used to bait trusting seekers. I, I remember very you know, kind of stopping in my tracks when I saw the Jonathan Spallin poster. And I think it's because, you know, I had his face on it and I'd seen his face, you know, in searching for stories about him online. But it was very faded when I saw it. Jonathan had been missing for at least two years at this point. At the top of Jessica's article, there's a picture of Jonathan's missing poster. On the poster are two photos of Jonathan, in one, his dark brown hair is down, his charming bearded face smiling, his eyes connected to whomever is taking the photo. He looks easygoing, present, like someone you'd sit down for 15 minutes with and lose two hours. In the other photo, Jonathan's hair is pulled back. He has his sunglasses on his head. He's not smiling. His eyes are detached. He's somewhere else. David Hammerback, the academic I interviewed in episode two, commented on these missing posters, saying they looked like they belonged on the side of a milk carton. He believes Jonathan was painted as a victim by the media, with the perpetrator of the crime being India. Though I'd agree that Jonathan was not a victim of India, the country, who's to say Jonathan wasn't a victim of something or someone dangerous while he was there? Though there's been no evidence of Jonathan's body, there was evidence found near his belongings. 
evidence that led some authorities to believe that Jonathan didn't disappear by accident, but by choice. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. A broad-shouldered Indian police officer walks through dense woods. He speaks directly to a camera following him on a trail of lush greenery, brambles, rocks jutting through the earth. There's a look of concern in his kind eyes as he maps out the spot near Garuchati Waterfall, a hotspot for tourists in Rishikesh, especially during the monsoons when the waterfall flows at seven different levels. This is also the spot where Jonathan's belongings were found. This is Kundan Negi, the lead officer on Jonathan Spallin's case. It's been five years since Jonathan was reported missing on February 27, 2012, which was two and a half weeks after Jonathan's last conversation with his mother, Linda, when he told her he was going on a trek through the Himalayas alone and that it was kind of a spiritual thing. On March 11th of 2012, an American couple discovered Jonathan's belongings in a wooded clearing, not far off the main trail, where the officer Kundan Negi is now leading a BBC camera crew. The belongings consisted of a bag with Jonathan's passport, phone charger, clothing, and some Hong Kong coins still inside. According to a BBC article written by Roland Hughes, a colleague of Jonathan's in Abu Dhabi, there was also a hospital record and ultrasound scan in the bag, which showed that Jonathan had been suffering from kidney stones at some point during his stay in India. 
Next to his belongings, a sleeping bag was laid out with a book on top of it. Nothing had been touched. It looked like a site that was set up to come back to, not disappear from. It was also reported that people who had seen Jonathan in the weeks leading up to his disappearance had noticed he'd lost weight and appeared frail. They also said he was walking with a slight limp due to a recent fall on a trail. So, if this is the case, he wasn't in the best condition to endure a strenuous solo track. This seems obvious, but what stumped authorities, leading them to question if Jonathan chose to disappear, was evidence found a few days after his belongings, on a route to the city of Patna. What was found on a narrow trail were balled-up identification cards and papers, including Jonathan's health card and Hong Kong travel pass. According to Hughes's BBC article, these discarded identification items pointed to one conclusion. Jonathan was doing what some foreign seekers do in Rishikesh, deliberately shedding his possessions and past life to renounce who he was so he could follow a new, enlightened path. And according to Hughes, the photocopies of articles on spiritual matters found in Jonathan's bag indicate that this was something he was considering. Directly after Jonathan's disappearance, a local newspaper in India said the case was new proof of the phenomenon of individuals, mostly male, disappearing at the religious hotspots of India and around Laxmanjula suspension bridge. The article quoted a senior police officer who ascribed the trend to renunciation fueled by spiritual awakening. So I think that originally I was reached out to just in terms of, did you know him? Do you have any idea what might have happened to him? This is Sadvi Bhagwati Saraswati, or Sadviji for short. She's a spiritual leader living in India who, fueled by a profound spiritual awakening, did renounce her life in California in 1996 for one she felt called to in Rishikesh, India where Jonathan disappeared. Sadviji has the presence of someone touched by a higher power. When she appeared on the Zoom with the pristine sounds of nature surrounding her, I could suddenly breathe deeper. So I think they then probably wanted to keep talking to just get some some idea of some clarity. Here I was, another foreign person who had made a decision to renounce. And so... They may have thought that I could give some advice in that way. Sadviji is Hindu, and through renouncing, she exchanged worldly assets for spiritual ones. But was this Jonathan's intention? That's what authorities and Jonathan's family wanted to find out, which is why they reached out to Sadviji after his disappearance to get some sense of understanding around someone choosing to renounce their past life in the West for one in India, which, as we've discussed, some of the evidence near Jonathan's belongings points to. A little bit later, they ended up finding papers and passport kind of torn up and thrown along pathways somewhere. And when after a lot of searching, they didn't find his body somewhere, usually if someone drowns in Ganga, either accidentally or on purpose, eventually a body will wash up downstream, not after that long. Ganga is also known as the Ganges, or Mother Gaia, 
It's the Holy River that runs through Rishikesh. As they were not having any luck with any clues suggesting that he would have drowned in the river, and they were getting more clues that either he or someone had thrown his identity papers around, they started thinking that maybe he had wandered off. Just wandered off into the Himalayas. Again, this sounds like a Chris McCandless tale an eastern into the wild, with someone retreating into the solitude of nature. But there is a romanticism around this idea of renouncing one's life. It's a clean slate, exchanging the noise and societal expectations of the West for the peace and purity of the East, which is something Jonathan apparently idealized when he wrote his article about life in the Kashmiri village Neranag. But would a longing for peaceful simplicity make someone renounce their life? leaving their beloved family, friends, pets behind, choosing to vanish? So no one renounces their life. What you renounce is a a way that you were formerly identified in your own mind, a way that you thought of yourself, certain roles or relationships or ways of living. We renounce sensual pleasures, so we take vows of celibacy. We renounce ownership, so we take vows of simplicity. We dedicate our lives to God. We renounce the idea of a a family being just, you know, three or four or five members when we speak about renunciation of the family. What it means is that we recognize that the whole world is our family. This is a Sanskrit phrase in India, meaning the entire earth is our family, or one family. So renunciation is not this romanticized idea of leaving your past life behind to choose a simpler one. Sadviji renounced to be in service of a higher calling, and the world. So if Jonathan renounced, he would be of the world not someone who dropped out of it. Also, there's no doubt that Jonathan was deeply connected to his mother, Linda. Their bond was evident, not only from the way Linda speaks about her son, but because of his consistent communication with her when he traveled. And this third trip to India was no exception. There were times during his travels where he would drop out for a week or so, due to bad cell phone service or to conserve his phone's battery, which is something he warned Linda about on their call before he took off on his solo track. But dropping out of his life entirely seemed out of character for Jonathan. I wasn't able to speak with Jonathan's father, David Green. But I do know, when he was reported missing, David flew to India to assist with the search effort. And according to an Irish Times article written in April 2012, a month after Jonathan disappeared, David was quoted saying... There is some evidence to suggest Jonathan was interested in a spiritual pathway. My trip to India shed a light on him for me. I have at times thought I was looking at somebody completely different to the son that I knew. To suddenly discover that there may be a whole spiritual aspect to his life that we hadn't really touched on is astonishing. Linda Spallin and David Green have not spoken to Jonathan in nine years which I can imagine for parents who deeply loved their son and fervently searched for him, would be complete anguish. 
According to Sadviji, the fact that Jonathan has not reached out to his parents is even further evidence that he did not renounce in the spiritual sense. My guru made it very clear to me. He said, A, I had to take their blessings before I took sannyas, but B, I also stay in touch with them. Sadviji is speaking about the communication she had with her family before she renounced and her ongoing relationship with them. When we speak about renouncing the family, it has to do with renouncing those relationships and attachments that thwart us on our spiritual path. Those that hold us hostage in a specific identity, in a specific attachment, in a specific role, in favor of the spiritual freedom of living as soul, spirit, consciousness. That's where the renouncing of family in the vows of sannyas come in. But it's not about bringing pain and suffering to those who have given you birth. That wouldn't be a spiritual thing. Mostly it's important to realize that renunciation is not running away. It's embracing something very, very beautiful and very, very real, very true. It's not a moving away from, it's a moving toward. So if Jonathan didn't renounce, like some authorities and media speculated, then what happened to his body? Garuchati is one of the most popular tourist spots in Rishikesh, so it's unusual that while Jonathan's belongings were found, he was not. Kundanegi, the lead officer on Jonathan's case, ends the BBC video shot three years after Jonathan was reported missing, saying, I believe that he is alive, and I'm still hopeful that we will find him. I mean, who knows? In 2001, 17 years after his disappearance, when his parents and the Austrian embassy in India had lost all hope of his being alive, an Austrian national reappeared, saying he went missing by choice in India so he could live in complete peace. This case was reported in a 2018 article for the Tribune in India. There was also someone they talked to who said that he was reading Shantaram, the book, and so they thought, well, maybe that inspired him to kind of disappear off the grid. That book found on top of Jonathan's sleeping bag? It's been reported that it was Shantaram. If reading Catcher in the Rye is a rite of passage for angsty teens, that's Shantaram for foreigners in India looking to reinvent themselves or fall off the grid. Influenced by the life of the author Gregory David Roberts, the 2003 book Shantaram follows a convict who escapes an Australian prison and flees to the chaos of India where he chooses to vanish into the slums of Bombay. He becomes absorbed by India, living through many significant experiences that eventually lead him to build an honest life. The title Shantaram has spiritual significance. It means man of God's peace, which is a name given to the protagonist Lynn by an Indian woman in a native Himalayan village. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. 
Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience. And stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. How could the most powerful man in media just vanish from public life? My name is Chris Moody, host of the new podcast, Finding Matt Drudge. I'm a reporter who's covered politics for years, and in this podcast, I'm going to travel far and wide searching for the reclusive Matt Drudge, the founder of The Drudge Report. Along the way, I'll talk to people who've worked with him, dined with him, and fought with him, taking listeners into private conversations, all in an attempt to get a better understanding of who Drudge is and what motivates him. I'll also be chasing down tips from you, the listener, through a special hotline. So if you know where Drudge is right now or have a great Drudge story that might help us better understand the mysterious media mogul, please give us a call at 301-200-2414. Hopefully by the time this show ends, the man who knows Drudge best, Matt Drudge himself, will break his silence and sit down with us. Listen to Finding Matt Drudge on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Though Jonathan was spotted with Shantaram before he went missing, a book that reveres this idea of falling off the grid, it's yet another speculation, not a fact, which I can only imagine would be hard for Linda. When I talked to her, I think she still needed to hold on to hope. I don't know where she's at now. This is Jessica Ravitz again, speaking about her conversation with Linda. I remember distinctly her talking about how she loved the idea of You know, if she could believe that he was sitting in a cave in the Himalayas meditating, like, that was a beautiful way to think about where he might be. And I, you know, I'm not, I'd never had children of my own. I cannot understand the pain that she had been grappling with. And and not yet accepting that he might be gone forever was where she needed to be. And I respected that. I mean, I, I understood that you know, the not knowing at least allowed her to hold on to a shred of hope. And who's to say that hope is unjustified? At this point, when examining what happened to Jonathan Spallin, all possibilities are open, which means every speculation, theory, or synchronicity needs to be considered, including something all three of the missing men, Ryan, Justin, and Jonathan, had in common. The first three stories we've covered in this podcast have some things in common. Yes, Jonathan, Justin, and Ryan were all Westerners who disappeared in India. But they're also three men. And you rarely hear stories about men in true crime. These mysteries or murderers usually revolve around women. I brought in true crime expert, psychologist Amanda Vickery, to talk about this. Not only because it's interesting, but she might be able to pinpoint some other commonalities. So if you look at crime statistics, 
men are much more likely to be the victim of a violent crime. People kind of get this skewed idea of, oh, women are out there getting killed all the time. And also, of course, a skewed idea of how likely it is to happen, which I fall victim to all the time. I convince I'm going to be killed by a serial killer on a daily basis when rationally I know the statistics of that happening are very, very slim. But yes, men are for sure more likely to be the victim of a violent crime, but not the types of crimes that are covered or focused on in the media as much, not always as sensational, which is what's interesting because the cases you're looking into of men missing in India is very unusual. We don't often get as much coverage of men going missing, as you said, compared to women. Um, It's less likely to happen in, in a sort of sensational manner. All of the cases we've shared so far on this podcast feature men, and their stories are sensational. But that's not just because of the media's influence. It's because of the mystery surrounding cold cases with no body, little evidence, and zero answers. My next question to Amanda was about risk-taking, a trait that was obvious in Justin Alexander Shetler's makeup, and possibly in Jonathan's. If you give someone a personality survey, men are much more likely to be risk takers and to be sensation seekers and things like that. And that's something I'm actually investigating in a study I have going on right now. I'm still collecting data on it. I'm curious to see if men and women who are more into sensation seeking and risk taking things like that, are they more interested in true crime podcasts? And that's something I don't know the answer to yet. It's ongoing. I guess I ultimately throw that question back on you, the listener. I'm admittedly not risk-averse. I mean, I'm doing this podcast. But I also listen to true crime in the same way many women do. Not just to unravel the how, but to understand the why. My research showed that women, people in general, and women especially, are into crime oftentimes because it's almost like a survival factor. They're learning what happens so that they can prevent it from happening to them. And I sometimes wonder the unsolved cases that should make it even more relevant because this person or whatever is happening could still be out there. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to investigate Jonathan's disappearance in this podcast. What if Jonathan's not alive and whatever or whomever got to him is still out there? Yeah, he definitely had speculations. Jessica Ravitz tracked down Kundanegi, the lead officer on Jonathan's investigation, for an interview in 2014 two years after Jonathan's disappearance. Negi was also in Ryan Chambers' case, but like I said, the Chambers didn't get a lot of help from the Indian authorities and weren't as supported by Negi as Linda was. Linda will forever be grateful for Negi's persistence, whatever the outcome. She considers Negi a man of great integrity and determination in a system which is gravely lacking in resources from a Western perspective. But Negi like any police officer immersed in a cold case, does have speculations about what happened to Jonathan. Oh, he wondered if maybe Jonathan Spallen had wandered off with a sadhu or a holy man who practiced black magic, for example. I'm going to check in with Inkita about this because it sounds sort of like the Justin Alexander Shetler scenario. And I want to get her thoughts on this whole black magic thing. First of all, there is no scientific basis for anything called black magic. Uh, But among people who do believe in it, the general perception of a black magic practitioner would be someone 
who knows of certain magical or uh, supernatural rituals that can be used to harm someone else that is the typical perception you know justin went with this sadhu on the spiritual track we don't know if this guy practiced quote unquote black magic but i guess my question is why would a westerner seek out someone who practices black magic i guess it would be the lure of mystery and also a journalist mindset of finding out what really lies beneath something that has not been explored enough or something that claims to be say supernatural but that's just one speculation here's Jessica Ravitz with more thoughts from Kundanegi he also speculated that there had been a great monsoon and flood in July of 2013 and that maybe he had died in that but i know there had been speculation that maybe he'd been eaten by a wild animal because he had wandered into the Himalayas on his own on a trek. So there, it's hard to know, you know, there are so many options of what could have happened to him up there. Um, and other people there told me that if Jonathan Spallin was wandering up there, you know, a white guy wandering in the Himalayas would have been noticed by others. And in the searching you know, no one had said that they'd seen him. So could he have also drowned? Could he have been eaten by a wild animal? Those were some of the ideas that were being thrown out there. Like I've said before, and out of respect for Linda's wishes, with no evidence of a body, all possibilities are open. So a slew of speculations still abound. And Jonathan's disappearance remains an unsolved mystery. I hope one day Linda Spallin can get answers around her son's disappearance. She deserves that. But I respect her knowing her boundaries. And in solidarity with her wishes, I ask all of you to please keep all the options surrounding Jonathan's disappearance open, like Linda has. To narrow the focus at this point with no real evidence would do Jonathan a disservice. I don't know if Jonathan would have called himself a seeker, but... I saw a lot of myself in his story. A curiosity and hunger for an understanding of humanity. A willingness to seek stories and connections outside of his comfort zone. A compulsion to live fully. I'm grateful to have met Linda and gotten to know her because her son's story has helped me reflect on my own. Jonathan's story was highly publicized, not only because of who he was or because his disappearance was shrouded in mystery, but because of where he disappeared. Yes, in India, but more specifically, Rishikesh, India, the holy city some consider a spiritual vortex, while others argue... That is the Bermuda Triangle of missing people, is that area. It is not the, not the spiritual Bermuda Triangle, I promise. We'll uncover the allure of the spiritual Mecca that allegedly swallows bodies whole in the next episode of Astray. Today's episode of Astray, Jonathan Spallin, was produced, written, and narrated by me, Caroline Slaughter. Ankita Anand is my co-producer, and Gabby Watts is our supervising producer. Special thanks to Jessica Ravitz. Astray was sound produced by Toonwelders, with score and sound design by Jason Shannon, and mix by Harper Harris. Executive producers are Brian Lavin, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. Thanks for listening.
School of Humans. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Everyone in our country has a voice. It's something that says not just where you come from, but who you are. Welcome to NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of podcasts and a celebration of the hosts in journalism who've always spoken truth to power. Our voices are as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, and stories should never be about us without us. Find NPR Black Stories, Black Truths on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.